This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the broadcast for Sunday, April the 10th, 2011. And we are winding down the days here with uh, Dan Ellison aboard as the very capable, very creative uh, technical producer for the Conspiracy Show. Dan uh, dropped a bomb uh, last week when I was uh, in studio with him. He said, Richard, I'm leaving. I'm leaving the show. I'm leaving uh, AM 740 and I'm hitting the road. And uh, Dan is going to, um, I think he's going to spend some time uh, out east this summer. Dan, he's got the road in his blood. He, uh, from time to time, he'll take a couple of weeks off and he'll hitchhike, if you can imagine. Now, I quite frankly have some reservations about that. As I said to Dan, you know, this isn't uh, the summer of love uh, we're entering into, Dan. This isn't 1968. Uh, there are some nefarious types out there. And Dan is a young man. And Dan is a bit of a, he's an innocent. He's just a baby-faced, well, he's got a beard, but he's a baby-faced 20, what are you, Dan? 24, 25, I think. And he's just, you're 25. Well, you're a good-natured, innocent young man, which is a good thing. Don't ever change. But what I'm saying is I worry. Uh, anyway, Dan's uh, decision to leave uh, the radio station, spend some time out east, and then he's going to thumb it all the way to British Columbia. And, hey, he's young. He's unattached. He's going to throw caution to the winds, and, and uh, life is an adventure. He's going to see he doesn't have a job lined up out there. He doesn't have accommodations, permanent accommodations. He's just going to see what happens. And, you know, part of me is uh, envious 
um, you know, I wish I'd uh, uh, had that kind of courage, uh, perhaps, or a sense of adventure when I was uh, your age, Dan. But I, I wish you the best, and I want to say, and I, and I'll, you know, we'll talk obviously before um, you leave. But um, it's just been tremendous uh, working with you for the last year and uh, and three quarters. You've brought so much to the program. But what I thought we would do, because you want to uh, hitchhike, I thought towards midnight, around 11.45, we'll open up the phone lines and ask people for their hitchhiking stories. 416-360-04, sorry, 416-360-0740, sorry, 866-744-740, toll free from out of town. I'm just all messed up. Uh, still haven't recovered from the news that Dan is leaving me, uh, but it's uh, at a quarter to 12. We'll, uh, we'll talk about hitchhiking just for a few moments. Let me give you a, a quick heads up. What's on to tap for tonight? Uh, 2012 essayist Thomas Rosetto will join us and uh, we'll talk about the Mayan calendar. 2012, as we approach, of course, that date is um, increasingly top of mind and uh, uh, part of the uh, the zeitgeist, if you will. Uh, a lot of speculation as to, um, you know, where did the Maya calendar come from? Why is it so precise? What did the Mayans know? Mayans, uh, did they have uh, uh, some sort of uh, connection to uh, the cosmos far greater than we can appreciate? Uh, was the Mayan calendar perhaps even created by ETs? We'll get into that at uh, midnight. At 11.30, our resident paranormal investigator, one of the world's foremost, in fact, Rosemary Ellen Guiley will be along with another investigation of the paranormal kind. Uh, this time she'll take us out to Estes uh, Park in Colorado and the Stanley Hotel. If you're familiar with the Stanley Kubrick film of 1980 starring Jack Nicholson, The Shining, of course, uh, based on the Stephen King novel, that took place or was uh, the Stephen King, the setting for that, for the book and the movie was the Stanley Hotel. Rosemary Ellen Guiley spent some time there. And if you've seen The Shining, uh, the, the, the hotel is known to be inhabited by a number of ghosts and she'll tell us what she experienced and uh, some of the folklore and legends and separate fact from fiction about the Stanley Hotel. Now, uh, we're also... Oh, going to do the hitchhiking, as I say. Now, first of all, though, what I want to do is um, go back a couple of weeks, and I'm, I'm sure many of you followed this story, and this is my first opportunity to talk about it. There was this bizarre spate of television presenters who were dissolving into on-air gibberish. That's the only way you can describe it, gibberish. And it's immediately, it sparked claims that the U.S. military might be behind this. Now, you may recall one of the uh, the high-profile uh, cases was uh, fast-talking Judge Judy. The they she she started uh, uh, she had to actually stop her courtroom TV show after descending into nonsensical language. In fact, she was hospitalized. But there were three other high-profile cases, and uh, one of them was local to uh, Toronto at uh, Global News. Dan, do we have any of those clips? Did you want to play one of those? 
Okay, maybe we'll, Dan, what, listen, we'll do that when we come back. We'll take a break. Uh, and when we come back, we'll play one of those clips. But uh, one of the popular theories being uh, circulated online is blaming the U.S. military's supposed research into using microwaves as a mind control weapon. And somehow, for some reason, they've targeted some of these TV presenters. We'll also get your feedback. Are U.S. government microwave mind control tests causing TV presenters' brains to melt down? We'll also be joined, hopefully, by Robert Duncan, Dr. Robert Duncan, and our own media scientist, Nelson Thal, to discuss when The Conspiracy Show returns. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Heavy, uh, heavy divertation tonight. We had a very Darrison bite. Let's go ahead, Terrace Chase and those for the bit. They had the pit. The truth is not out there, it's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. That was uh, Serene Branson's garbled Grammys report uh, fairly recently. And uh, that is just one of four recent cases in which TV presenters dissolved into this on-air gibberish. Uh, they were four very close together, and uh, some are speculating the U.S. government is using some sort of microwave mind control test to cause these TV presenters' brains to melt down. And perhaps a little bit later, we can play the, the, the more recent one from Judge Judy, uh, no less. Um, but, uh, oh, the other one was Mark McAllister of uh, Toronto's global uh, global news. And uh, he was talking about Libya. And he just went on for, you know, if, if someone, I, I've done this in, uh, you know, being on live radio, you, you get uh, a little confused or disoriented or distracted and you start stumbling over your words, but you stop yourself, you collect yourself and you, you soldier on. Or if, you know, if you're really struggling, you might throw to a quick break and come back. But in these cases, it was if these individuals didn't even know that they were speaking in nonsensical uh, verbiage, they just continued to go on and on and on. And it was really uh, quite, quite shocking. Uh, Nelson Thal, our resident media scientist is, uh, is with us here on the conspiracy show to weigh in with his thoughts. Nelson, how are you tonight, buddy? I'm fine. Um, how's this sound on, on Skype? It's terrific. It's like you're in the, uh, in the same room with me. Oh, that's great. Well, there sure is a lot going on, Richard, uh, that well, we can you, talk about. When you witnessed some of these TV presenters uh, talking about, you know, it's, it's funny because you and I were on the radio a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about HARP. And whether or not it may have been used to cause uh, these in, these uh, earthquakes, whether we're talking about man-made seismic occurrences, and and the uh, harp entered into the uh, the discussion, uh, and it wasn't uh, more than a day or two after that that these reports started to come out about these TV presenters. Is there a connection? Do you think? Yeah, I I, I think there's a big connection, and certainly. Um, once again, Richard, there's a lot of high technology that we're familiar with that's very powerful that the average person uh, is a techno-peasant to and doesn't understand. And uh, what's interesting is that, for instance, um, there's even U.S. patents on these machines, that can, the mind control machines, as well as which we call psychotectronics, 
as well as the tektronic weapons like HARP and others. And what would these devices uh, look like? For example, uh, what um, what would be the delivery system? Are we talking about uh, uh, a satellite-based uh, system? Or are we talking about an array of radio towers like the, the high-frequency auroral research project up in Alaska? Yeah, the propagation of the low-energy electromagnetic fields can be done just by an array of antennae. And so it's a high-power weapon, um, but uh, it's got a silencer, a visual silencer, so to speak. But just like when you put an egg, Richard, in your microwave oven and put it on 20 minutes, just watch it. It blows up, but you don't see anything. It's invisible. The rays are invisible, and um, that's why uh, people aren't aware of it, because the rays that come out of these uh, antennae are, are invisible. Uh, but Nelson, in one of these cases, and yeah. I'm not sure it was one of the female TV reporters, uh, there was, there is rather, a history uh, of uh, of seizures with this uh, this woman. Is it not possible that what we're witnessing here is something coincidental? That perhaps in one of the cases, or maybe more, there may have been some underlying medical condition, like, uh, well, perhaps this woman was having a seizure on air. You know, I think you got to remember that um, this isn't just happening with one person. And people with seizures, like, uh, are susceptible to uh, to uh, the technology. You know, Rich, Richard, the Russians have a machine with a U.S. patent, number 3773049. It's for the treatment of neuropsychic and somatic disorders such as neuroses, psychoses, insomnia, hypertension, stammering, bronchial asthma, and aesthetic and reactive disturbances. It uses pulse RF fields, and it's an early psychoenergetic machine. And they had a patent on it. And it basically is based on the biological effects of low-energy electromagnetic fields. And they fine-tuned it to where they can control your mind using uh, beams from and emotions, mass emotions. And they have 10,000 of these antenna in the London tubes, and we're aware of that. And they, um, they use the cell towers. How do they target uh, one individual? I mean, is it so precise? I mean, yeah, it's very precise. They focus it, and they have it in trucks, and they can go around the city with it and focus it at you. And there's victims of it that I've interviewed and spoken to, scientists who worked on in secret projects, and they're being uh, have this stuff aimed at them. You know, Richard, there's a number of well-known documented uh, uh, aircraft crashes. Um, uh, with, uh, with where they beamed it at the at the uh, took control of the mind of the pilot, Manchurian candidate, and had him fly the plane into a mountain. And these are th- this is known. And that's without uh, without having some sort of an implant in the victim. Uh, yes. They yes. Just without simply... an implant, Captain Gordon has New York Army National Guard. Uh, was a victim of psychotectronic warfare on his autonomous nervous system on March 4th, 1998, and people should look it up. Captain Gordon Hess. 
Nelson Thal is with us, a media scientist and assassination researcher, also the producer of Shock Talk with Bloom and Steel, which uh, popular uh, TV, a uh, web TV uh, uh, series, which airs Thursday nights. We'll tell you how to listen to that a little bit later. Uh, Nelson, why these particular individuals? I mentioned Mark McAllister from Global News. Yeah. Uh, we had, uh, of course, the high-profile Judge Judy. We had this uh, a couple of uh, young young women. Why were they being targeted? Well, the, the answer was uh, in the movie Network, wasn't it, Richard? When, when um, Ned Beatty comes up to <laughs> comes up to Beale and says, Beale asks him, "Well, why did you choose me for this message?" And what was his answer? "You're on television, dummy." Right, right. So, so what, are, are they? Trying, I think they're doing tests. They want to. They can mind control these people to to give the news they want it to give. Well, in this case, they weren't putting words in their mouth. They were simply causing them to to their brains to sort of melt down and, and cause them to speak in, in in gibberish. But are you suggesting they could go one step further and actually put thoughts and words in their mouths? Yes, in in, um, in Captain T. E. Bearden's book Oblivion: America at the Brink, he goes into it and he points out that they can f- switch a person's persona uh, to a different entity I- instantly. With the with with a beam, and did with they a, do low frequency okay. beams can alter and they can put thoughts and take control of their minds. Now, and they're called psychoenergetic weapons, and there's teams. Okay. Yeah, and they've been talking to people. They've been whistleblowing as well. Here's the other thing that that uh, comes to mind, and let me just throw this out there and play devil's advocate with you, because I'm also looking for other possible explanations, and we have to be able to rule everything out before we come down on the side of, yes, this was definitely U.S. military mind control microwave experimentation. And that is, I, um, recently we did a show uh, on the dangers of EMF. And uh, we had a very high profile, well, Victor Vigiani, of course, uh, a, a guest hosted while I was off shooting the TV show. But he had Dr. Magda Havis uh, on the program from Trent University as one of the re- preeminent researchers into the neurological, biological effects of microwave radiation from cell towers, from wireless uh, technology, wireless Internet, etc., baby monitors, all these sorts of things. Now, if a TV presenter is out in the field, for example, or even if they're in studio and they have one of these wireless mics on them, uh, they're they're producing enough EMF that could disorient, I'm told, uh, if someone is susceptible and perhaps has some underlying, uh, you know, medical uh, weakness, etc., that a, a, a radio transmitter in close proximity, or a mic, one of these microwave tr- trucks that the th- reporters use out in the field, that EMF could be enough just to, to disorient them. Is it possible that that's, it was unintentional, but that's what's going on here? Uh, Richard? Yes. Um, you know, basically, to answer your question, uh, Bearden points out that they can instantly, in a hyponogogic state, insert thought words. Thought so they words. call it a mind snapper, then strikes on your mind, a mind snapper. Okay. All he right. calls it. 
But let me go back to that question. Is it possible that what we're witnessing with these these four individuals is simply the deleterious effects of uh, being in close proximity to EMF, microwave transmissions, uh, a a, a wireless radio um, uh, transmitter, these sorts of things? We we know that these things have an effect on us. Yeah, but Richard, um, uh, I I don't think there'd be that – a, a rash of it like that unless this we these people were being targeted and when you look at what's going on in the world with the other use of tectronic weaponry and the takeover of the media you can see that these people are being targeted well it it is certainly a, a coincidental that we had a spate of them like that and there's there perhaps there is more out there that we haven't seen, haven't been privy to, so we'll have to keep our eyes and uh, ears open. Uh, let's take a time out. We'll come back. Nelson Thal, media scientist, still waiting to hear from uh, Robert Duncan, Dr. Robert Duncan, if uh, he's able to uh, to join us to discuss. Uh, well, a lot of people are discussing this, that's for sure. Government microwave mind control tests. Is this or are these behind this recent spate of TV presenters' brains melting down live on television. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416 360 0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1 866 740 4740. A little inside secret here. I'm actually doing the program tonight via Skype from my little enclave up here in Onionville north of Toronto, so, and I've lost my uh, a text communication with uh, with you, Dan, so if we have a, f- a caller on the line, just uh, buzz me in my ear and uh, give me a name and we'll, we'll get to the calls, and we do welcome your phone calls at 416-360-0740 and 866-744-740. Do you think, and this actually is the online poll questions at richardserrett.com, the online poll question at richardserrett.com, do you think that U.S. military microwave mind control tests are behind the recent spate of TV presenters' brain meltdowns. And uh, Nelson Thal is on the air with us at the moment, media scientist and producer of Shock Talk with Bloom and Steel. A little bit later, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal researcher, will join us to talk about the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado, of course, the site for the Stephen King novel, The Shining, and the Stanley Kubrick uh, movie of the same title. And uh, Rosemary, God bless her soul, she actually um, spent a night there alone, I think, when the hotel was basically closed down, and uh, she'll be here to share some of her experiences. And uh, if you remember the movie, of course, with uh, Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall, and uh, uh, of course, he goes uh, crazy with an axe and turns on his own family, And uh, Stephen King spent about five months at the hotel when it was closed down for the season and uh, wrote The Shining and uh, had some very strange experiences there. So Rosemary Ellen Guiley coming up. A little later, uh, midnight, we'll talk with Thomas Rosetto, uh, an essayist, researcher, 
to talk about 2012 and the Mayan calendar and whether or not it's possible the Maya calendar was created by the ETs. Uh, And just before midnight, Dan Ellison, my intrepid technical producer, is leaving the show and the radio uh, station to uh, hitchhike, if you can believe it. Yes, it is 2011 and uh, there are people still hitchhiking. Dan Ellison is hitchhiking out to British Columbia to start a new life. And we'll open up the phone lines for just a few minutes and uh, get your hitchhiking stories, which may be a cautionary tale for Dan. I'm not sure. All right, um, Nelson, again, the uh, the recent spate of uh, TV presenters. So do you suspect that that the this is like a one-time deal for the uh, for these experiments? Are we going to see more? Are we going to see more high-profile people, uh, perhaps even a politician uh, getting up uh, before a microphone and having a complete meltdown? Do they want to demonstrate their power? Well, I think they're demonstrating their power in Japan right now. <clears throat> so I don't I don't I don't think that um, um, that's a problem and it's hard to tell where they're going to go with it. But uh, people can I know people can we can come back to it and talk about the 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 Captain um, Amy Svoboda's death, Captain Hess's death, Captain Button's death and the attack at the way these psychotronic weapons can be used against pilots in our military, which has been done and they've covered it up and. We can get back to it at some point. It's good to to review it. Okay, I think we have a, a caller on the air. Dan, did you say Allison is on the on the air? Craig and Alliston, thank you. Craig, go ahead. You're on the hi. conspiracy show. Well, hi, Dan. Or, hello, hi. hi. I have a question for your guest. Go ahead. Yeah, um, I heard if you wear aluminum or tinfoil hats that it'll protect you from these. Uh, signals what can you do to protect yourself from these signals as i understand it and it's been shown in the movie control factor you can get the movie 2003 control factor which goes in and shows this weaponry uh, copper lined hats copper lined ah. caps will protect you from it right all right craig and allison thank so you, you for take that copper you're right uh, you take some copper and put it inside copper mesh inside your cap and put it on and they showed that in the movie control factor and you may want to look at it and get more details also if i could i mentioned emf uh, earlier nelson and uh, this is a growing industry where uh, people that are concerned about not necessarily mind control but uh, the dangers of microwave radiation and so forth because no one these days is with is is further afield than, let's say, you know, 400 meters from one of these cell phone towers. Uh, There are companies out there that actually specialize in coming to your home, detecting the level of EMF you have coming into your home, uh, whether or not you're being targeted or not. And uh, there is a a vast array of uh, products now available to protect yourself. There's even a type of paint you can paint it on interior walls that will remove a lot of the uh, the or reduce the EMF. There's fabric that you can drape over your 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 bed at night. Uh, uh, you can make clothing out of it. Uh, it it's it, one website would be uh, safelivingtechnologies.ca, I believe it is, uh, or or you could just Google safe living technologies. A good man, uh, Robert Metzinger, is uh, heading up that company near Guelph. And uh, he'll actually come to your home and test for uh, for EMF. Uh, and from time to time, he receives calls from individuals who believe they are being targeted by uh, for for some sort of um, electromagnetic uh, attack. 
Uh, well, listen, Nelson, it's um, always a pleasure. Thanks for your insights into this fascinating story. And uh, we'll, 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 we'll really now, I think, uh, have our ears and eyes tuned for more uh, reports. Now, Dan, uh, I don't know if you have – do you have the Judge Judy clip uh, or any of the other – you don't. Okay. We'll, we'll play that maybe a, a little bit later, but uh, uh, maybe you can just, can you play that clip from that one woman uh, on doing her Grammys report one more time? Okay. This is uh, the, the TV reporter on the red carpet just before the Grammys. This is how that sounded. Well, a very, very heavy, uh, heavy divertation tonight. We had a very Darison bite. Let's go to Terrace and for the bit. They had the pet. <laughs> My word, that is just uh, shocking. <laughs> uh, I mean, we, we've all stumbled over a few words, but nothing like that. All right, listen, Nelson, uh, Thursday night, uh, Shock Talk with Bloom and Steel, and uh, how do they listen or watch that? Yeah, com. All right, my friend. Thanks a lot, Richard. We'll talk soon. We'll see you soon. Okay. When we come back, Rosemary Ellen Guiley will tell us about the Stanley Hotel out in uh, Colorado. And, uh, of course, again, that was the, the scene or the setting for the Stephen King novel, The Shining. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. And um, we'll uh, take your calls on hitchhiking here in just a few moments. Again, Dan Ellison, my technical producer, leaving the show at the end of the month and uh, thumbing his way out to Lotus Land. And uh, you may have some, uh, some hitchhiking tales that you can share with us that, as I say, may serve as a cautionary tale for Dan. I have really some serious reservations. I don't want to alarm Dan or uh, if his parents are listening. Uh, Dan's a responsible young man, and I'm sure he'll, uh, you know, he'll be very cautious. But uh, uh, I'm sure there are a lot of interesting uh, hitchhiking stories out there. And again, we'll take those in about 15 minutes' time at 416-360-0740 and toll free from Thunder Bay to the Carolinas and Maine to Minnesota, 866-744-740. Just uh, received my uh, latest edition of the All Saints Herald and uh, All Saints uh, Greek Orthodox Church up on uh, Bayview Avenue in uh, North Toronto where uh, our family attends. And it's a wonderful newsletter, but on the back is a rather uh, tragic uh, story potentially. And uh, as a young woman, a mother of three children in Toronto, 44 years old, and pictured here with her beautiful children. And on the left, uh, there is a picture of Kathy and her three children. And uh, again, another picture on the right. And uh, Kathy, uh, without hair. She has recently been diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia, AML. And you can imagine the complete devastation that uh, this has brought to their lives. And the only cure for Kathy's type of cancer is a successful stem cell transplant. And her siblings have been tested, but unfortunately, they're not a match. So her only hope, her only hope, and this is a race against time, is to find an unrelated donor. And Kathy, who is of Greek descent, uh, meaning that... uh, it, 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 to make a match, it would be more likely within the Greek community 
And uh, so they're asking people uh, to please register with the Stem Cell and Bone Marrow Registry. Anyone between the ages of 17 and 50 can join. And uh, it's very simple, as I say. After answering a short health questionnaire, you rub a swab on the inside of your cheeks. It's as simple as that. And if you're a match with Kathy or another recipient, the actual transplant procedure in most cases is similar to donating blood. Uh, in the meantime, I strongly urge you to log on to www.helpsavekathy.com. Kathy with a C. www.helpsavekathy.com. Again, this is a woman, uh, a mother of three children. She's in a race against time, desperately looking for a stem cell transplant. www.helpsavekathy.com. All right. It is the second Sunday of the month. I always look forward to this because that means a visit from our dear friend, paranormal investigator. Oh, we don't have Rosemary Ellen Guiley as yet. All right. Uh, why don't then uh, we open up the phone lines and um, maybe we can do the uh, the hitchhiking stories until we get to that. Dan, do you want to take a break? And uh, we'll, uh, we'll see if we can get some people calling in and talking about hitchhiking. 416-360-0740. And 866-744-740. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. All right, welcome back. Having a little difficulty raising Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator. We'll keep trying. Uh, actually, though, uh, it reminds me, a couple of uh, days ago, I received a, an email from Rosemary, and it had taken a longer than usual period of time for her to respond to me. And she emailed and uh, apologized for the delay and said, I'm having some gin problem now before you start thinking, oh, here we go, another woman's battle with the bottle. No, that's not what I'm referring to. Gin, uh, as in D-J-I-N-N, I believe is the correct spelling, as in genie. Uh, the last time I had Rosemary Ellen Guiley on, we were talking about... Uh, uh, the, um, her new book, which is uh, about these vengeful jinns, these paranormal supernatural entities. And she said that she was having some difficulty with those. So perhaps uh, they're uh, to blame. All right. We're talking about hitchhiking. And uh, I believe we have Elsa on the line from East York. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hi, Mr. Serrett. I'm so glad I got to speak with you. I asked Dan where he's going to be on November the 11th because that's 11, 11, 11, and it's very ominous. And thank goodness he's still going to be in Canada, in B.C. I was hoping that you could give some comments on this date and what you plan to do. I'm going to be staying very close to home, and I'm listening to your show that night. Do you have any feedback on that date? You know, I do uh, receive a lot of emails from people uh, who see the numbers 1111 everywhere they look. And I have to admit, uh, uh, I've, I've seen them as well. You know, you, you suddenly look over at the clock in the microwave or the uh, uh, the digital clock by on your nightstand and it's uh, 1111. 
uh, or on your car, uh, your car clock, you know, why, why, why did you look then? Why wasn't it a minute later at 11.12 or 11.13? Why always 11.11? Uh, so we'll, um, you know, but obviously these, these, uh, you know, triple 11s or what have you, they come up, uh, you know, uh, September 9th, 2009, uh, um, October 10th, 2010, you know, we're always surrounded by these types of numbers. Do they have significance? Well, I'll, I'll get a numerologist on the program as we approach that date. And, uh, I know that I've had a, a Glynis McCannis on the, on the show, uh, a numerologist, and, and um, she has a lot of insight into this field of, of numerology and uh, what's really happening with this uh, with this phenomenon. Uh, yes, and I just wanted to mention that I went to an Italian psychic, and the Italians, November is the month of the dead, too. So she really kind of freaked me out, but um, I really shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't dwell on what these people say. Well, uh, I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not going to tell you one way or the other whether you should uh, dwell on what they say. That's your, you know, if that's your uh, personal belief system. However, let me ask you about Dan hitchhiking to British Columbia. Do you have any any thoughts on that? Good idea, bad idea. I think if he gets into a car, he should go to get into a car when it's one person driving. Never, never when there's more than one person. Only if there's only one other person with him in the car. Uh, good advice. Thank yeah. you for that, uh, Elsa, in East York. Okay, bye now. Bye now. The other thing, Dan, and I think I've told you this, is uh, when you uh, see a car pulling over to stop, what I would do is I would have someone you can call and uh, read out the license plate to that person on your cell phone before you get in the car each and every time. That would be my... Uh, that would be my advice. And of course, if they suggest that you, uh, you get into the trunk, <laughs> probably not a, good, not a good plan. All right, 416-360-0740 and 866-744-740. And we have, I'm sorry, Dan, we have who on, who on the line? Web Ferry. Web Fairy, that's their handle. All right, I'll I'll bite. Web Fairy, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. You're on the air. Hi, hi, Richard. Thanks for hi taking there. my call. Thank you. Um, I just want to say to make two comments. Um, number one, Ian Punnett, Punnett of Coast to Coast went through a gibberish phase about a year ago. He played it a few times. People thought uh, the final analogy was maybe he'd fallen asleep. But when you think about it now, it was exactly like Judge Judy and this other woman that you've put on. And the other thing, and I know I'm going to get a lot of people disagreeing with me. I wanted to actually be on when Nelson was on because I know he won't agree with this. But Charlie Sheen disturbs me. Um, I think he disturbs a lot of people. Addiction problems, but I also know he was a 9/11 truther, and I think he would be a classic target for someone who they would want to get to they'd want to zap him and i i mean maybe that sounds really far out but something just doesn't ring true to me with with all that he's gone through and i have a sense that they're you know he's under attack by more than just his drugs and alcohol yes you know and i hope he gets in the right cars (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's uh, thank you for that. Yes, we okay. all hope that Dan gets in the right cars. Thank you for the call, Web Ferry. Well, it's funny you, you mentioned that about Charlie Sheen. A number of people have mentioned that to me as well. So you're not alone. It's not that you know. It's it's uh, considering you know what we discuss on this program. It's it's not 
beyond the pale as far as I'm concerned. Uh, if the, um, the military-industrial complex and whatever cabal is behind that, if they have this technology at their disposal, uh, then it makes sense. I mean, if they have an opportunity, if they have a motive, uh, then they would use it. And uh, why not Charlie Sheen? He is one of the more outspoken 9-11 truthers, as you say. In this case, though, I I, I tend to think that this is just a a lethal combination of uh, uh, perhaps uh, crystal meth or uh, crack cocaine, uh, uh, copious quantities of um, expensive alcohol and and a a huge ego. Uh, However... I'm willing to keep an open mind. Is Charlie Sheen, in fact, a victim of some sort of uh, um, microwave mind control experiment? Tim is in Kitchener. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Tim. How you doing? I'm well, thank you. Yeah, I've uh, done some hitchhiking, and I've also picked up hitchhikers. So I don't know if uh, I can assist. In well, we're just wondering whether... Our, our uh, technical producer Dan is wise in this day and age to be thumbing it out to Vancouver, out to uh, British Columbia. What are your thoughts? Uh, you know, I think you know he should get through Ontario, okay, and then it might be a little hard going through the prairies. And but once he hit BC, uh, he should have no problems. So there are uh, there are still lots of people out there that are willing to pick up hitchhikers. I mean, we, I've been phrasing the question in terms of concern for Dan's safety, uh-huh. but that's true. I mean, uh, people who are, are picking up hitchhikers are also taking a huge risk. So you, you, they are. Now, you're right. Why? Um, what, when you see someone with their thumb out, mm-hmm. you've got you know you've got maybe twenty seconds once you have a visual to make a decision whether you're going to stop and pick them up. What goes through your mind? Uh, the laws of probability, more or less. This person needs a ride. They're not out there to murder me. Like, I mean, it's paranoid to think that there's people creeping out there to murder drivers and then, you know, drivers out there to murder hitchhikers, I think. Would you be less likely to pick up a a male or a female? Uh, well, it's, it's tough to say, you know, it's all always a gut feeling, right? But Obviously, males can be a little more intimidating than a female can be. So, yeah, I've driven by guys before, there's no doubt. What if the individual had a beard? Would that, would that um, cause you maybe, if they had long hair and a beard? Dan has long hair and a, long hair and a beard. Would you pick up oh, Dan? He would, you know, it looks, sounds like he'd fit the, you know, the so-called hippie archetype, right? Yes, definitely. So, uh, for the record, Richard, I, I, I am planning on shaving before I head out. For that express that purpose? Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I'm planning you know, on shaving. I think, uh, yeah, he'd be fine. Better off with, with a clean face for sure. But the best actually is if you're with a woman. Like if, if like a couple was out there, right, they get right. picked up a lot. Like I've been hitchhiking on the side of the road in British Columbia waiting for hours for a ride. And all of a sudden, this woman came walking up to me who needed a ride the same way, and we stood there for about five minutes before someone stopped and picked us up. So, you know, if you could find a woman that you like, (laughs) take her with you. You may get there faster. 
All right. Thank you for that. I think that was, was that Tim yeah. uh, calling in? All right, Tim, thanks for the call. 416-360-0740 and 866-740-4740 here on The Conspiracy Show. Dan is hitchhiking out to Vancouver or British Columbia this summer. Good idea, bad idea. And if you have a paranormal or supernatural hitchhiking story, perhaps you saw some specter on the side of the road hitching a ride. They got into the car, into the back seat, and uh, I don't know, maybe they asked you to drop them off at the nearest cemetery. Who knows? Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. We're talking about hitchhiking. Is it Graham in London? Graham in London. You're on the air. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show. Thanks for having me. Love your show. Enjoy your show. My I've pleasure. Uh, had you. the experience of traveling all over the world. And I've hitchhiked, uh, hitchhiked in Africa. I hitchhiked two days before the ANC was elected. I hitchhiked from Swaziland through KwaZulu-Natal, that's where the Zulus are, all the way into Mozambique to go fishing on the Indian Ocean. The other trip I had, a friend and I left England by train. We got to France. We started hitchhiking from France. We got to Paris. We waited all night. We pitched a tent on the side of the road at night. Waited all night for a ride in Paris. The police tried to drive us off the road. But the funniest thing happened. We were having trouble, the two of us together. So we split up uh, on our way to Genoa, to Italy. And we said we would meet at the train station. So my friend set off first. And a few hours later, I arrived at the train station. I looked all over for my friend for about an hour in that train station. I couldn't find him. So I went to buy a ticket. They told me there was another train station in Genoa. So I bought a ticket. It was only two kilometers away, I think 4,000 lira at the time. So they said, go to Platform 8 or whatever. So I went to Platform 8, and I got on the train to go to the other station. Well, after a while, this train, the houses started to go by, and the next thing I knew, I was in the country, and I was on the express train to Milan. And the train only had one stop. I was about 300 miles north of Genoa when I had to turn back and catch a train coming the other way. And as I pulled into the station, there was my friend on the platform looking at this train coming in. And uh, he'd been there all the time, but we just missed each other. Oh, my. Oh, my. So that was a funny story. Well, then the next morning, of course, we set off for Rome to see the Pope. And, uh, oh, we had some funny times and some, some funny times. But it's safe to hitchhike, you know, even here. 
I used to hitchhike at 16 from Kingston to Toronto to visit a girlfriend. And the best advice I can give is make up a sign. Tell them where you're going that you have a destination to go to. All right. Well, hitchhiking in Africa, that is certainly very uh, oh, yeah, adventurous of you. And yes, you, you're right. I mean, the odds are stacked in your favor because, let's face it, most people are good. Uh, it's just, you know, there are... You oh, just you have to be wary, that's all. You I have to keep your wits about you. I going to Toronto when I was about 16. A guy tried to grope me in the car, and I got out and jumped out. But that was once out of hundreds of trips. But, uh, yeah, you always have to be on your guard. All right. You know? Thank you for that. Okay. Thank you. Okay, well, Dan, you're getting some uh, some good advice. I hope you're taking notes. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, I mean, do you do you have a, a cell phone? Are you going to are you going to take that with you and, and make sure that before you get into a car each time you? What do you think of that advice? At, at this point, I do not have a cell phone, but I'm I'm working on that. I will have a cell phone by the time I by the time I head out. All right. 416-360-0740 and 866-740-4740. Last calls to the phones on uh, hitchhiking. And uh, we're just a few minutes away from checking in with our essayist, uh, Tom Rosetto, uh, to discuss 2012 and whether or not the Maya calendar may have been created by ETs. If it was, that would certainly go a long way in explaining the preciseness uh, of this uh, this calendar, uh, how how else to explain why this ancient civilization would have such intricate knowledge of the cosmos and the migration of the stars and so forth? How could they know that? Uh, you know, thousands of years before the the development of uh, uh, of telescopes and uh, and and uh, and so forth. So, uh, Thomas Rosetto will be here to talk about that. All right. We uh, will take a quick time out. When we come back, uh, maybe we'll take one or two more calls on hitchhiking. Good idea, bad idea. And I'd love to hear a supernatural hitchhiking tale, if you've got one. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us here on AM 740 Zuma Radio. and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Next week on the program, Nigel Kerner uh, will be with me. Live from the UK, the author of Grey Aliens and the Harvesting of Souls, The Conspiracy to Genetically Tamper with Humanity. Just read a quick email I received. Uh, someone, I guess, fairly new to the program, and uh, also on the TV show, which just concluded its first season on Vision TV. Hope you enjoyed our first run of 13 episodes. And... Uh, I'll give you news on when you can see the next 13, when we're ready to make a formal announcement. But uh, it was uh, a real thrill uh, to be able to put that program together for you, on, again, on Vision TV. Uh, but uh, someone emailing who is very interested to, to know the meaning of my sign-off on the radio show each night 
on the program, I end by saying, move over Aphrodite. I'm coming home. And of course, on the television show, I sign off the same way. Move over Aphrodite. I'm coming home. So they're wondering, what does that mean? Am I speaking in code? Uh, is that some sort of cryptic message? Uh, uh, not at all. It's a, um, it's just a message to my, uh, my lovely bride. Uh, and that is her, her nom de air. It's not her real name, but I call her the mighty Aphrodite. And, uh, She's, um, we actually met in radio years ago uh, at another radio station. And these days, if you go to my homepage, richardserrett.com, and you scroll down to the bottom, you'll see a little banner for her company called Fantasy Wedding Rentals. It's uh, fantasyweddingrentals.com, uh, and it's in uh, York Region. And she, uh, she specializes in wedding and event decor. So if you've got a, uh, a wedding coming up, you can uh, check that out. Uh, wedding, uh, weddings and special events, corporate events, uh, bar mitzvahs, you name it. Anniversaries, birthdays, specializes in chair covers and just does a wonderful job in making a, a banquet hall look spectacular. Uh, and that's for the budget conscious uh, bride and what have you. Fantasy Wedding Rentals, and uh, that's .com forward slash York. And that's my mighty Aphrodite. All right, Thomas Rosetto uh, is standing by, ready to talk all about 2012 and the Mayan calendar. Can't wait to get into that conversation with him, and we'll do that just on the other side. So stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett, and if you want to, if you want to get in on the conversation, 416-360-0740-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Thomas Rosetto has a degree in electrical engineering with an emphasis in computer programming. This education also provided a solid background in science, including physics and chemistry. Well, about three years ago, Thomas became interested in 2012 after attending a public lecture about science and myth. As part of the lecture, the topic of 2012 was presented, but not in a very clear way. So he started to do his own research and quickly found the work of John Major Jenkins and the Galactic Alignment. But this Galactic Alignment already happened in 1998. So Thomas spent months digging and searching for the real reason that the Mayans picked the exact day of the winter solstice of 2012. After about two years of research and contemplation, Thomas wrote a book titled Mystical 2012. Did the Maya Shamans Discover a Mystical View of Reality? And uh, today we're here to talk about his latest essay titled Why the Maya Picked 2012 or perhaps Did Extraterrestrials Create the Maya Calendar? 
Thomas Rosetto, good to have you back here on The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? I'm well, Richard. Thanks for having me. We, we should also mention that all of your essays on 2012 are available for free at www.2012essays.com. Now, before we, uh, we get into the, the nuts and bolts of galactic alignment and so forth and what this all means, what do we mean when we're talking about the Maya calendar? Because the Mayans had many types of calendars. Which one are we talking about specifically? Oh, we're talking about the Maya long count calendar. This calendar was put into use about 2,000 years ago. That's when the first stone carvings of long-count calendar dates were found in the southern tip of Mexico. The calendar itself has a length of 5,125 years, but it was put into place about 2,000 years ago, which means that it restarts coming up on the winter solstice of next year. And why that particular chunk of time? Did, why are they measuring chunks of time in 5,125-year intervals? What does that represent? That was quite a puzzle for me. Um, the wobble of the Earth, and most people are, that are interested in 2012 know that the wobble of the Earth comes into play. It's called precession. One cycle of this wobble is a very long period of time. It takes 26,000 years for that wobble to complete one circle. Now, we know that the day naturally divides into four segments. You have sunrise, high noon, sunset, midnight. We also know that the year naturally divides into four parts because of the equinoxes and the solstices. So I was wondering why they took this 26,000-year period and cut it into five rather than four. It's a, perhaps a little bit more involved than we want to get into, but it has to do with the layers that the Maya like to use. They like to have a symbol that means more than one thing, and one of their symbols is a five-pointed star. This five-pointed star arises from the observation of the cycles of Venus. It's just, when you look at Venus, it's a morning star for a while, and then later it becomes an evening star, and then back to a morning star, and so forth. And they construct this five-pointed star to reflect this cycles of Venus. And they take this five-pointed star and they draw a circle around it, showing you that this is a cycle that repeats over and over again. They use this same symbol for the great year, this 26,000-year period, and by cutting the great year into five pieces, they ended up with the pieces each being 5,125 years long. So they can use this five-pointed star to talk about the cycles of precession and the world ages. They talk about five world ages or five suns. And this is all being layered on top of what they observed for Venus. You mentioned you went to this lecture and... Um you got into your own research, and then you quickly discovered, of course, John Major Jenkins, one of the major yes. researchers in the field, and, and his talk about galactic alignment. Now, you say that galactic alignment has already happened. First of all, yes. what is meant by galactic alignment, and what do you mean it already happened? Um, you know, I really like John. He's a great guy, and his work is really good. Yet, when I saw that this already happened, I... I became um, kind of um, unsatisfied is the best word, and I dug and dug. But to get to your question, John uses this phrase, galactic alignment. This is a phrase that he created 
but he precisely defines it with astronomical events, which are real. John is right on when it comes to the science. And John also acknowledges that this alignment happened in 1998, as best it could. And here's what happens. What you want to do is consider the exact moment of the winter solstice for each and every year in the years around 2012. And you ask yourself at that moment, if I draw a line from the Earth through the sun and into space, will it hit the galactic equator? And it turns out that the year that best fits that is 1998. There's a number of things that um, are a little uncomfortable for me about this. Is One, you can't tell from your five physical senses when the moment of the winter solstice arises. And you also can't tell exactly, you can't look into the sky and see where this galactic equator is. Yet our scientists have precisely defined this imaginary reference point. But that's what it is. You draw a line from the Earth through the sun and out into space towards the galactic center. You miss the galactic center by approximately six and a half degrees, but you hit the galactic equator, and the galactic center sits on the galactic equator. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the sun is actually in this position once a year, every year. Exactly. It's been doing so for billions of years. It's just that in the time around 1998, it does so around the precise moment of the winter solstice. I honestly don't think that knowing about the galactic alignment is helpful in understanding 2012. I pushed it aside, yet it's so popular and so well-known, I usually have to talk about it. All right. So if we're not discussing the galactic alignment as this pivotal moment, this celestial occurrence on the winter solstice of 2012, what then is going to happen on the winter solstice of 2012? On the exact day of the winter solstice of 2012, from the viewpoint of the Maya down in the most southern tip of Mexico, which is where the long count calendar was created, and that's why I told my astronomy program, I want to look at the sky as if I was standing where the Maya stood. On that day at high noon, If you could look up at the sky, you're just going to see the sun. It's going to be a typical day with the sun in its position of the winter solstice, which means it's fairly low in the sky. Now, if you could push a magic button and see the planets that are near the sun, what we're going to see, and also the stars of the Milky Way, what you're going to see is a stunning cross. This cross in the sky is fairly large. To give you a feel for how big that cross is, if you were to put your arms all the way out at arm's length, and spread your hands, both hands, as wide as they can. That's how big this cross will be. And if you put the sun in the middle, where your two thumbs are meeting, on your left, on the tip of your little finger, will be Mars. And then on your right, on the tip of your little finger, would be Venus. So you have this horizontal crossbar of planets. Going from left to right, you're going to have Mars, Pluto, the Sun, Mercury, and Venus. And it's a pretty impressive display with the Sun almost exactly in the middle of Mars and Venus. That's what I call the horizontal crossbar of light because each of those objects either reflect or give off light. And this crossbar is joined by what I call the crossbar of darkness. This is the dark rift of the Milky Way. 
It is not quite vertical. It's 30 degrees shy of vertical, and yet it goes right through this, this other crossbar and meets right where the sun is. The sun is virtually exactly in the middle of this dark rift. <clears throat> so the combination of these two things, the crossbar of darkness and the crossbar of light, bring us the concept of yin and yang. And the tree of life, or the sacred tree, or the sacred cross, all these names are used for this configuration. All of this is arising from what the Maya saw as the pregnant belly of the mother of creation, which are the stars, the very faint stars. There are so many of them that it looks like a cloud. And that was considered the pregnant belly of the mother of creation. And the dark rift intrudes into this. And that dark rift was seen as the birth canal. So we have the sun in the middle of the birth canal. That means the sun is being reborn on this day. And we also know from indigenous populations that go there, all of history, that it was very common for them to consider the winter solstice also be a day of rebirth, because the days have been getting shorter and shorter. And now, because of this day, we'll now have longer and longer days. The sun is getting stronger and stronger. So we have yet another rebirth of the sun. And finally, every day we have the sun rising above the horizon. And since the sun setting the previous day was considered the sun dying and going into the underworld, when the sun rises above the horizon, it is said to be yet another rebirth of the sun, the daily rebirth of the sun. It brings us the light and heat. We all need to stay alive. So on this day, we have a triple rebirth of the sun, the daily sunrise, the, sun, the uh, winter solstice being another rebirth, and then finally the rebirth, what I call the galactic rebirth, with the sun in the middle of the galactic birth canal. Now, I mentioned that you had to push a magic button to see this at high noon, yet the truth of the matter is the mile will go and watch before dawn. At high noon, you have the sacred tree in a beautiful configuration, standing with this horizontal crossbar as horizontal as possible. If you run the clock back a couple of hours towards dawn, the sacred tree will be laying down on its side. And then at dawn, you'll see the right part of the tree coming above the horizon. So at a quarter to five in the morning, pitch black, the mile will see Venus rise above the horizon, announcing, here comes the triple rebirth of the sun. It's like a parade. And the sun is the guest of honor on the day of its triple rebirth. And Venus, a very important planet in the eyes of the Maya, is going to announce to the whole world, here comes the sun. Here comes the triple rebirth of the sun. And Mercury will join it shortly thereafter. Normally, you don't get to see Mercury rise. But on this day, unless it's cloudy, the brightness of Mercury will be bright enough that you will be able to see it with your naked eye. And then at 6.30 in the morning for the Maya, in the southern tip of Mexico, they will see the sun rise above the horizon bringing so much brightness that it will wash out these other Venus and, and uh, Mercury. And then later, it will rise into the sky, and at high noon it will have that beautiful configuration, and then it will start to set towards the west. And after the sun sets, when the sky starts to get dark enough, you will be able to see Mars set, announcing the end of the parade, this fabulous parade that took place throughout the entire day. Now, I mentioned Pluto, but I only mentioned it out of completeness. Pluto is never visible to the naked eye, and I don't think that the Maya were tracking Pluto. But my look towards 2012 is to emphasize 
the astronomy that takes place on this day, the day the calendar itself is reborn, the sun is reborn three times. And this brings us to the transformation and rebirth metaphor, which is based on the astronomy. And then lastly, the most important thing about 2012, digging into the core meaning of this timeless metaphor of rebirth. I find it absolutely, completely jaw-dropping, yet I don't point to any physical effects. I don't think that this astronomy is going to cause anything unusual to happen to us. I don't think that the Maya were using it as an alarm for danger or as an announcement that there's going to be a shift into higher consciousness. I just don't find those views to be what the Maya are talking about. They're talking about this very, very deep metaphor. And this is supported by some of their monuments that they have in their sacred ceremonial grounds. I'm sure you have some questions on all that. (laughs) Oh, indeed. Indeed, Thomas. And we'll get to those. We'll take a time out. Thomas Rosetto is an essayist and... uh... His latest is Why the Maya Picked 2012. We'll also take questions and comments at 416-360-0740. And total free from Maine to Minnesota, Thunder Bay to the Carolinas, 866-744-740. We elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Thomas Rosetto is with us, the author of the book Mystical 2012. You can view that online at uh, www.mystical2012.com. His latest essay is Why the Maya Picked 2012. We'll also delve into the question as to whether extraterrestrials created the Maya calendar. Well, let me, uh, let me jump right to the quick right there, Thomas. The, the, why would the question uh, arise as to whether the ETs may have created the Maya calendar? Is it because the calendar is so precise that there's no way an ancient civilization would have been able to track the, the migration of the stars or the uh, migration of the planets without the aid of some advanced civilization. Yeah. That's very much, um, it seems like that. And I, I really wrestled with this question for a long time, because one way to look at this is from 2,000 years ago, they predicted the day that contained the moment of the winter solstice. This is not easy to do. And I looked at that just shaking my head, you know, like if they observed the slow shift for hundreds of years, it still doesn't have enough accuracy to come up with what was needed to make the calendar restart precisely on this day of the winter solstice. So I shook my head. Did Atlanteans help them? Did extraterrestrials do it? Um, Or did they do it from some other means? And um, what I recently discovered was that an archaeologist named Marion Hatch did some work on a town called La Venta, where they had sighting stones. Now, this goes back 3,000 years from today, so it goes back to about 1,000 B.C. 
she has decided that there were stone temples that were aligned to the stars in such a way that she sees that they were tracking not only the stars, not only the planets, but also procession. And to get to this real quick, if you go out at night and watch for just, say, six hours, and you look towards the North Star, what you notice is that all the stars make a circle around the North Star. Have you ever noticed that, Richard? Uh, to be honest with you, no, I haven't, Thomas. Yeah, if you, um, like, for example, at this time of year, if you go out, you can see the Big Dipper. And then if you look six hours later, the Big Dipper will kind of go up higher in the sky and make a loop around, and it's all making a circle around the North Star. That section of the sky that everything spins around, I call it the point of stillness. And it only takes one night of sky watching to notice that this point of stillness exists. And as you watch it night after night after night, you still see the same spot in the sky. And so what they did was they aligned these sighting stones to point to that spot. Now, it's pointing to true north, and yet what happens is over 50 to 100 years, they notice that the point of stillness is still the point of stillness, and yet the object that occupies that point has shifted into a new object, or it might not be an object, but it could be just a vacant space, but it's shifted a little bit. What I mean by this is you can imagine the axis of the Earth pointing off into space, and as the Earth wobbles, that axis points to something slightly different. And in the course of 26,000 years, it points to uh, a whole circle, and it just goes through the circle over and over again. But the fact that it pointed to something different was a clue to these ancient naked eye sky watchers that there is some type of shift going on. And I think what they did was they started, they just used the day, counting the days, and they counted days for a 1,000 years, from 3,000 years ago to 2,000 years ago. And by counting those days for a 1,000 years, they were able to really dial in, not just to the length of the year, but to the length of the great year. And it's a little... Um, little more than I have on the tip of my tongue to talk about, but we can go into it more. Um, you see what I mean? It's like what they were asking 2,000 years ago, they could look up in the sky and they could tell what stars were behind the sun. They, they would simply go out before dawn and see the constellation that was in the dark sky, and then a little bit later, the sun would rise and wash it all out, and then later after it set, they would see the darkness of the sky again, and they would see what constellations are following the sun. And they had mapped the stars, the full zodiac, the circle, so precisely that using that it would give them a good guideline to where the sun was. And during total solar eclipses, they could actually see exactly where the sun was compared to the background stars. And by doing this, they could have a sense of the rhythm of the sun against the background stars, and that's how they knew 2,000 years ago that the sun was in the middle of the dark rift in late November, and they noticed that it shifted slightly, and their question was, what year in the distant future will the sun be in the dark rift on the same day as the winter solstice? Because then you would have those two rebirths coming together, 
and then, of course, you would couple it with the daily rebirth. So you'd have the triple rebirth of the sun. That was the driving question behind the long count calendar. When is there going to be a triple rebirth of the sun? And by monitoring this shift for a thousand years and counting each and every day, they could answer that question by saying, well, it's just going to be twice the amount of shift that we've already monitored during the last thousand years. So they could take the number of days that they counted and they could just double it. And because the error was less than a half of a day, when they doubled it, their error was still less than one day. And they hit the exact day of the winter solstice and also the triple rebirth of the sun. And they also monitored the rhythms of the, the planets around the sun. And so that way they knew what was coming on as far as the sacred tree. My thesis is that they picked the winter solstice of 2012 because of both the triple rebirth of the sun and the special configuration of the sacred tree with that fabulous symmetry. It's very beautiful. So that's, that's what I'm thinking in that regard. Okay. Now, on the one hand, the, the explanation as to how they pulled off this incredibly precise calendar, and maybe in a minute I can get you to give us an analogy of how precise the calendar was, let's say comparing it to someone drawing a map, uh, because you've made that analogy quite brilliantly in the past. But on the one hand, how they managed to do that is almost, the explanation is almost mundane. It's simply patience, observation, perseverance, uh, and 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 uh, continuity in order that you know one person who was responsible for this when they passed on they had to make sure that there was yeah. someone else ready in place and yeah. I mean it's almost you would think you know mind numbing work just to continue every single day tracking these migrations making yeah. notes of it you can't miss a day yeah exactly um, in that sense it's remarkable but. Uh, you know, those people listening perhaps were thinking that there must have been some sort of an ET connection, so maybe the explanation is a bit of a letdown. I don't know. But my question to you, Thomas, is it seems to me that this calendar is is counting down to a date that really, where does it go? I mean, if, if it doesn't lead to some sort of a, a heightened, uh, you know, consciousness for humankind, if it's not leading to uh, some uh, turning point, the end of an era, the beginning of a new one, why? Yeah. Why were they? Why weren't? Why were they counting down to that day? Why weren't they just counting down to I don't know a total eclipse of the sun? They could have picked that. Yes, exactly. And um, first of all, I I want to point out that I have not, um, as far as the ancient astronaut theory, I'm still open-minded. I haven't addressed it at all. All I'm saying is that as far as this calendar is concerned, I think it could have been done by ancient people that who were both, like you said, very patient and were willing to pass the knowledge down from generation to generation. But your question is, so what? Why was it important to them 2,000 years ago? And I'd like to weave into that. Most calendars are based on astronomy, and it seems that when you look at how the sacred tree is in their folklore and how this rebirth metaphor is in their folklore, and you look at what's in the sky on that December 21st, 2012, you see how it's the exact astronomy that can be used for those metaphors. It's without question that they were doing this intentionally. So this calendar is astronomically based, but they're also giving us a message. 
And almost all messages that come from the ancients are metaphorical. They're not literal. And so the metaphorical message has to do with what is transformation, what is rebirth. The questions of 2012 are really deep. They are, who are you? What is the true nature of reality? A question such as, what is going to happen to us on December 21st, 2012, or in the years around 2012, is just much too superficial. In other words, if there was something that was going to happen at that time, the Maya 2,000 years ago wouldn't be able to consider it important because it's just too far away from them. But metaphorically, if it had vast impact to them metaphorically, it would be as real to them 2,000 years ago as it is to us today. Does that seem to make sense? It does. It does. Um, but And to still, get into this real quickly, what yeah. we need to talk about is the psychedelic shamans and the, um, the toad, the Bufo toad, which gave them the chemicals to have these psychedelic experiences. And this is what led them to the mystical view of reality and the new, greater sense of self. This is the transformation and rebirth that they consider is so important. And the toad is in the sacred ceremonial ground. All right, so, so take us down to the ceremonial site of Izapa in Mexico. Where is Izapa and why is it so important? Izapa is at the most southern tip of Mexico, all the way down. Some people think I'm talking about Extapa, which is up the coast, way up the coast. But Izapa is all the way down on the tip. It's on the Pacific Ocean side. And for whatever reason, it is the birthplace of the Maya Long Count calendar. Um, some people say it has to do... There is another calendar that they use, which is a 260-day calendar. And in Izapa, the sun goes over your head, and then 260 days later, it goes directly over your head again. So some people say that that's why they picked it. I don't know. But um, for whatever reason, this is where the long count calendar was first created, and you see it in stone around that region. But surprisingly, in the sacred ceremonial site of Izapa, in the actual ceremonial site, there are no long count calendar dates carved in stone. I just about fell out of my chair when I found that out. You would think, with all the hype that 2012 is receiving today, that you could go down to Mexico, to the heart of the land where the, the Maya created the long count calendar, that you would find the date, 2012, December 21st, 2012, carved in stone 100 feet high. You know what I mean? Yes. But instead, yes. They, they don't seem to emphasize the date at all. And in the sacred ceremonial site, they're underlying the astronomy, the triple rebirth of the sun. They're underlying the shamans going on these psychedelic trips with the benefit of the psychedelic chemicals from the Bufu Toad. So that's where we're at with that, I think. All right, let's uh, check in with Hunter in south-central Ontario. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Hunter. How you doing, Richard? I haven't talked to you for a while. Thanks for joining us. Good to hear from you. Uh, yeah, listen, I um, I didn't catch the beginning of your uh, broadcast tonight, uh, so I really uh, um, don't have the gist of what your guest is speaking about. But um, I know that um, there seems to be uh, a lot of people seem to be perplexed about uh, the meaning of the, why that particular date and year is uh, pinpointed on the Mayan calendar. Um, I saw a program uh, last year, it was either on National Geographic or one of the Discovery Channels or something like that, and um, they uh, claimed that um, they felt that um, the Mayans were particularly um, accurate in, in their astronomy, and that um, what that actually, um, it's not, I don't know if it's a prediction or it's just a succession in their clock, calendar 
that um, apparently what that is, it's, it's, um, uh, it's an alignment in our solar system on that particular date that, um, according to what they're saying, um, may have never, ever occurred before in history. And what it is, is all of the planets in the solar system and the sun line up in a straight line, and they're lined up um, as well with um, the center of our galaxy. So I don't know if that, uh, when they uh, uh, calculated that, if they uh, fell off their chairs or whatever, because um, what that implies uh, could be, uh, you know, I mean, if you think about what the moon just does to tides and stuff like that, um, the gravitational pull uh, into the center of uh, the Milky Way uh could be, I don't know, mind-boggling. I don't well, know first, what, you know, how you'd uh, think about it beyond that. Well, Hunter, first of all, you have to keep in mind that when, when you're talking about a galactic alignment, and, and this is exactly what what uh, uh, Thomas is, is talking about, uh, not the, the not the galactic alignment that John Major Jenkins was talking about, but a, nif- a different type, it, it's, it's only an alignment from our vantage point here on Earth. Yeah. So there wouldn't necessarily be any, you know, gravitational effects, keeping in mind, you know, that uh, the moon, even though it affects, you know, the tides, yeah. it, it really doesn't have a, uh, to my, my thinking anyway, a major influence uh, on, uh, on, uh, on, on, on humans. But uh, Thomas, uh, did you want to, uh, to, to, to jump in here and, and say anything? Yeah, you're on the right track with that, Richard. I mean, even Jupiter doesn't affect the tides because even though it's so massive, it's just so far away that it just isn't going to do anything. The center of the galaxy is really, really far away and has no gravitational effect on the Earth. And um, the planets are not all going to line up, and things are not going to really line up with the center of the galaxy. It's going to line up with... We, on, in 1998, you can draw a line from the Earth through the Sun to the galactic equator at the moment of the winter solstice. That's the galactic alignment of John Major Jenkins, and it already happened in 1998. So if there's any kind of effect, it's already going on. I don't think there is any kind of effect. Hunter, thank you for the call. Give me a sense of the precision of this calendar. You made an analogy to someone, let's say, prior to a satellite-type system of of drawing a map of uh, North America. Yeah, what we see is that if the Maya understood the length of the year almost exactly, Let's suppose they were only off by one minute. Well, out of a whole year, that's a pretty precise understanding. If they took that understanding of that one year and added 10 years together, that one-minute error would accumulate to 10 minutes. Does that make sense, Richard? Yes. Yeah. So if they accumulate 1,000 years or 2,000 years, they'd have a 2,000-minute error. Well, 2,000 minutes is longer than the length of one day. So if they did that, they would be off by more than one day. So the exact precision that they need has to be within 45 seconds. Well, out of one year, this type of precision, it's like measuring the width of the United States to within 20 feet. And it's like measuring the distance from Los Angeles to Tokyo to within 40 feet. And in terms of a percentage... It's 99.9999% correct. And this is absolutely stunning. 
I literally fell out of my chair. Well, I didn't quite fall out of my chair, but I almost fell out of my chair when I did that calculation. I double-checked it, triple-checked it. Am I using the right equation? Is it really like this? Could it really be this precise? How did they do it? And I sat on that for a very, very long time. And then when I realized from the work of Marion Hatch that they had data going back a thousand years before they put the calendar in place. Of course, we're not talking about the Maya when we go back that far. We're probably talking about the Olmec. But that, that's just a minor point aside. But anyway, after that, I said, ah, I see how they maybe could have pulled it off. They really needed to be dedicated and um, very motivated. So what is it that motivated them to do this? And I think it's the deep metaphorical understanding of this triple rebirth of the sun that comes about. What about the the so-called Mayan uh, prophecies that are connected uh, with the calendar? Yeah. Uh, There were UFO sightings, uh, et cetera. Tell me a little bit about that. You know, that's very interesting. I don't know whether that goes to the original ancient Maya at the time the calendar was put into place. They may, the ancients may have had just this prediction of the astronomy. In other words, no prediction of catastrophe or or human shifts in, in consciousness. It may have been just the astronomy for the timeless metaphor of this spiritual rebirth, this awakening. But it could be that these shamans died and their deep understanding, their enlightenment, passed away, and the shamans that replaced them did not have a full understanding. And yet you might imagine, Richard, that these people would be the answer guys. If you and I go to them and say, hey, how come your calendar ends on December 21st, 2012? They have to have an answer, right? And if they don't know what it was, if they didn't really understand the depth of this timeless metaphor, they may have put predictions on top of it. So it may have been laid on. I, I don't know. Or maybe I could be completely wrong, and it's just a coincidence that there are both. I don't know. Well, th- there are uh, people out there that are sort of doom and gloom, obviously, about the whole 2012 thing. There are people that say that we are overdue, for example, for yes, a yes. major solar storm yes, yes. Uh, that could knock out... Uh, navigational equipment, uh, yeah. electrical grids that could take yeah. years to bring back online. Essentially, we'd be freezing in the dark. And yeah. uh, they say it could happen in 2012, it could happen in 2013. Yeah. Is that just a coincidence, or do you think perhaps the Mayans were tapped into something like that? You know, I looked at that because even our own modern scientists have terrible time trying to predict those solar cycles. So I'm thinking, how could people 2,000 years ago predict these solar cycles? And I'm open-minded. I'm not a closed, left-brain, cold-hearted scientist. I mean, I'm a mystic. Uh, And I really look at um, reality in a wider sense than the limitations that are imposed by modern mainstream science. And I've looked at psychic predictions. And I myself have had feelings of like, oh, something's going to happen, you know. And these feelings are usually about something that's near something that's fairly close in time. You know, to be able to predict something in the future 2,000 years away seems to me just not likely. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, it still seems not likely. And if they're looking into the future, it would seem to me that they would see things that are more relevant to them, such as the downturn in their society in the years 800 to 900 A.D., such as the invasion of the Spaniards, around 500 years ago. These types of things would be what I think that they would talk about. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, Listen, we'll take a time out. We'll come back. Much to discuss uh, with Thomas Rosetto. The Maya calendar of 2012. Why did they pick that date? 
Were ETs involved in its creation? Thomas is open-minded, but says probably not. We'll take your take as well at 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, and toll-free from out of town, 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Thomas Rosetto is with us, essayist, researcher. His 2012 essays are available for free at www.2012essays.com. 2012, and uh, he's using the numbers there, 2012 and then essays.com. And his entire book, Mystical 2012, is available for download for free as well at www.mystical2012.com. Mystical2012.com. So, Thomas, what happens uh, after the winter solstice? I mean, the 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 long count calendar just starts all over, and then and then in another five thousand one hundred and twenty five years, there'll be another twenty twelve. You know, that's a really interesting question because um, these triple rebirths of the sun arise in 26,000-year periods. And in the years around 2012, there are numerous triple rebirths of the sun. They don't all have the same beautiful configuration of the sacred tree that I described earlier, but they all have a triple rebirth of the sun. There are about, I'm just going to say, 50 years that do this. And I've taken some screenshots from my astronomy program and showed these for different years, you know, like 2008, 2009, and so forth. And um, so it looks to me like the culture of the Maya goes back around 2,000, 3,000 years for, you know, people living in that region. It doesn't go back the full 5,000 years of that calendar. And so projecting forward another 5,000 years into what? I don't know, some kind of conditions of the world or conditions of space. I just see this calendar as being used as a one-shot deal to point to this triple rebirth of the sun and this sacred configuration, this special configuration of the sacred tree. This is a unique event. That a sacred cross being over the Maya on that day will never happen again. And so I think there is a special message in there about the rhythms of nature. We see that nature is full of cycles, and yet every moment is a unique moment. We all know this. Today is a, you know, a unique day, even though yesterday also had a sunrise and a sunset. Do you know what I mean? Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. So I, I, I mean, the, you, you mentioned their, 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 um, their, a year for them was 250 days, was it not? No, they had an accurate understanding of a, an actual fuller year, but they also had other counts. They had a 260-day count which is kind of an odd count, but it also reflects the, the amount of time that a human takes to gestate in the womb. Yes. And also it has something to do with, again, the sun going directly over their head and then going over again 260 days later. And it may have something to do with their planting cycles. I'm not sure about that. I was going to say the planting cycle because everything was about, you know, the, the, the growing season and, and, yeah. and harvesting corn and, and so forth. So they were really measuring time in a far more 
I mean, we have this very mechanical overlay, the way that yeah. we measure time. It's compartmentalized and it, it's not, it's, it's mechanized, but it's, it, it separates us from nature. Yes, and I think that um, I hear people say that um, the Maya are trying to get us to take a cyclical look at time rather than a linear approach to time. And I think both are erroneous. I think in the deepest sense, time is just the moment, the eternal now. And when we look at what time holds, we can see that there is cycles. There are cycles in what time holds. But that's kind of like saying space holds your car. But that doesn't mean that your car is space. So the events that fill the moments of time can be cyclical without time itself being cyclical. Time is just the moment of now. All right. Doug is in Indiana. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Doug. Yeah, I was following in your your program here on the Mayan culture and everything, and uh, for the kind of technology these people possessed at this time, I think it's kind of irrelevant that some of the stuff they was doing, like... Uh, bloodlettings and sacrifices and stuff, and then they had the ability to foresee in the future calendar dates a couple thousand years in advance, sunrises, eclipses. I mean, it just doesn't sound right, and some of these uh, photographs of aerial images on plateaus near these uh, pyramid structures and stuff, like of spiders and humans that can be seen from the air, but you can't really tell anything from ground level, seems kind of far advanced for the people of this type of uh, culture to me, but I don't know if I'd go with a UFO type of uh, uh, originality for the Mayans, but uh, as of uh, having this kind of technology around the planet at this time, I just don't see how they can do things like, you know, precision drill things microscopically that we have a hard time in a shop doing right now, and making things such as precision glass skulls and stuff like that, just kind of a little bit past their ability, I would think, wouldn't you? Uh, Doug, you make uh, a, Doug, those good points. Point. Um, a lot of those things have nothing to do with the Maya, though. Um, the mass tech lines and um, the skulls and... Well, those... they, they was find it, found in uh, Mayan uh, areas and stuff, though, according to these programs I watched. But... And the drilling of the stones, they, they don't have anything like that in the Maya. But... The point is that if they took a thousand years to do their sky watching, they could have had the precision to make this calendar. As far as the bloodletting and the human sacrifice, I think this is the deterioration, a loss of understanding of the depth of the meaning of what the most ancient shamans brought to the table. And I think that things happened, um, there were shifts, and people thought that they should engage in these human sacrifices. And I don't think that that would have been embraced by the uh, people that put together these these calendars. Doug in Indiana, thank you for the call. Uh, let's now check in with Michael in the Beaches neighborhood of Toronto. Michael, good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yes, uh, good morning, Richard, and to the guests. <laughs> oh, anyway, um, hearing, you know, just one more view about uh, 2012, that, you know, configuration, and that, you know, it sounds like it's nothing you know, cataclysmic for us to really worry about. Shouldn't we be more worried about uh, the solar eclipse in 2017 when 
the sun blocks out everything. Like, I think the last solar eclipse was uh, back in 1979. Well, I don't well, think Michael, we need to be really worried about, about solar about, eclipses. Um, it's the solar storms the that eclipse. I'm concerned about. And I don't know about the upcoming one. But so far, there really hasn't been any damage to us on Earth because of solar eclipses. So I, I really wouldn't worry about the astronomical impacts from that. Well, other than you can't be outside, you know, or sun blinds you or, you know, things like that. You have to be inside while the eclipse is going on, I guess. No, 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 you can be outside. You just shouldn't look at it with your naked eye. Uh, yeah, well, we, were, <clears throat> we all have to stay inside, though. Oh, all right, okay. Michael, well, thank you for the call. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it almost sounds anticlimactic now, uh, actually, you know, just hearing. You know, the, that, that is an excellent point, uh, uh, Michael. Thank you for the call. Thomas, how is your, uh, not that it's anticlimactic, because what you're saying is, hey, no, let's not lose sight of the fact that this calendar was so precise. That's what's spectacular here. Uh, we should all actually uh, em- embrace the fact that there's no doom and gloom here. It's not the end of the world. Let's just marvel at the the Maya, their their capacity to uh, to put this calendar together. Uh, but how is this information being embraced by the the John Major Jenkins and some of the others? I haven't had any feedback from John, um, so I really can't speak to that. And some people, when I connect with the right audience there's a strong resonance where people really are enthusiastic about it. Yet there's another group, um, the doom and gloomers seem to be okay with it, actually, because <laughs> um, I don't encounter them too much. But um, some people that want, they really have this deep desire for things to get better. You know, I mean, here we are in the world, we have a ton of trouble, all kinds of problems on all kinds of levels. People want to know that things are going to shift in a way that is better, and they want it to happen now, which is basically 2012. And I certainly want to tell them, work towards a better world, be inspired, bring your values you know, forward as best you can now. doesn't matter whether the calendar was truly about doom and gloom or whether it was truly about an upward shift in human consciousness. I think that you can actually embrace a course of action that's agreeable with both. You should be prepared for trouble, for earthquakes and things like that. And you should work towards a higher consciousness. What did Gandhi say? You know, be the change you want to see. You know, be peace now. This is where the deepest metaphor points to, you know. It reflects a very deep fundamental understanding of the nature of reality and the nature of the true self. This is why it was seen as a rebirth. And this is why they used the symbol of the toad, because the toad both gave them the chemical for their psychedelic experiences, and also the toad itself is a symbol of transformation from the tadpole to the toad. Now, for the person that's interested in actually um, going outside on, on, on the winter solstice 2012 and observing, what we're going to see up here in the, the northern hemisphere, this is not this is not going to be reflected in our heavens, I'm guessing. This is this is a unique perspective from southern Mexico, is that correct? You still can go out pre-dawn and watch Venus rise and then Mercury rise and the sun rise, and then later you can see Mars set. And in the middle of the day, at high noon, if you were to go out and look at the sun, it'll be fairly low in the sky for you up that high. But um, it'll be fairly low in the sky, but there would be a cross, a sacred cross in the sky right over you on that day. Anywhere on Earth. Um, it shifts a little bit as the Earth is 
rotating, I'm sorry, the Earth is orbiting around the sun very slowly. And in one day, it makes the sun seem to shift slightly against the background stars. So for the Maya, at, it looks to me like around 4.30 in the afternoon, the sun is exactly in the middle of the dark rift at 4.30 in the afternoon. So that means the people on the other side of the world, it would be dark at that time and they wouldn't see it. Yet the sun actually spends about two and a half or three days in the middle of the dark rift. So basically, all around the world on this day, there's this triple rebirth of the sun and this special configuration of the sacred tree over everyone, especially at high noon, local noon. You just wait for the sun to climb to its highest point. At that point is when the horizontal crossbar of those planets that I described, that's when it's most horizontal. So that would be what I call the sacred tree standing up over them. Thomas, what what is remarkable to me is uh, you are a relative newcomer to this whole field of studying 2012. Uh, and, and and you've come up with this, uh, well, uh, Michael in the Beaches referred to it as somewhat anticlimactic scenario because it's not doom and gloom and it's not, right. you know, uh, a, you know this huge galactic spiritual rebirth or what have you. How, how is it that the others, the John Major Jenkins and, 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 and others sort of missed the boat on this? You know, John's a great guy. I really like John. And after I found what I found, I looked deeper into his stuff. Now, as you know, he talks a lot about the galactic alignment. But I also found that he does talk about what he calls the perennial philosophy, which is what I call mysticism. So he, we're on the same page. He just doesn't put it up front. And also, he's very aware of the sun being in the middle of the dark rift. And he, and he sees that as a rebirth. He doesn't use the phrase triple rebirth of the sun precisely, but he found this way before I did. It's just that he didn't promote it. I found it on my own, but I didn't find it first, if you know what I mean. Right. And, independent and, research on my part. And then once I found it, I realized that he knew it too, but he's just promoting this galactic alignment. And the reason I think is, you'd have to ask him, but the reason I think he's doing it is because the galactic alignment has a precise scientific um, definition, all the modern astronomers know about the galactic equator and the moment of the winter solstice, and you can point to it and all that. What I'm pointing to is visual. Naked eye astronomy, no telescopes, you know, and so someone can say, well, there's another triple rebirth of the sun in 2011, 2010, and there is. And there's a sacred tree, you know, it's a different configuration, but, you know, it's also on these other years, you know, and there is. But the one on 2012 is the one that's so jaw-dropping with the symmetry between Mars and Venus. And with Venus rising first, they put Venus very high. Um, of course, the sun is the brightest object in the sky by far, and then following the moon. And then we have Venus. And so Venus is seen as the perfect person, per se, to lead this parade. Because when you have a parade, you don't put the most important person first, right? You have to have someone from the Chamber of Commerce up there first if the most important person is the mayor of the city. You know what I mean? Right, right. And the parade exactly. doesn't just chop off after the guest of honor. You have to have somebody that's pretty important, kind of, you know, bringing up the end of the parade. That's so right. you have this incredible... Sweeping up after the elephants. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, my thesis, again, is the combination of the triple rebirth of the sun and the special configuration of the sacred tree. I think it's jaw-dropping. Plus, I hook it in with the toad the psychedelic experiences of the Maya, awakening to the true self. Once you awaken to the true self, it's just so mind-blowing that they wanted to point to it. It's like a poem. If I write a poem about enlightenment or spiritual awakening, and I use the sunrise 
as a metaphor, because that's the time when our dark world is infused with light and we all awaken from our slumber. The poem should not be taken to mean that we will all become enlightened at sunrise. The poem should be taken to mean that there is a general awakening possible, and it happens in its own time. Do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. So what would you, in in summation, uh, for those uh, people that are, let's face it, there are a lot of uh, writers and uh, individuals out there who are spreading this fear about 2012, that uh, it's the end of times or the the end of modern civilization. What would you say to those people that have sort of bought into that and, and and are fearful? Ah, that was probably the main reason why I started digging into 2012, was to look at the astronomy and, and to see what it was and to hopefully put on the table the geometry of it and to show that um, the angle of the Earth's axis is changing just slowly. So if there's going to be some kind of negative effect, it would have been happening for hundreds of years, and it would continue for hundreds of more years. I don't think there is an effect. So I want people to relax. And even if there was, even if, you know, like some people have this happen, the doctor tells them you only have X amount of time to live, you know, you still want to bring forth your values as best you can in the moment with the people you love around you, you know. So we don't know how long we have to live, most of us. So we do our best. Thomas Rosetto, uh, appreciated as always and again. Your essays are available for free at www.2012essays.com. And, of course, uh, your book, um, uh, Mystical 2012, Did the Maya Shamans Discover a Mystical View of Reality? Uh, That is uh, available for free at www.mystical2012.com. Always a pleasure, Thomas. You can also order it on Amazon if they want. Excellent. What what, what are you working on next? Um, I'm still promoting this, but I'm also, I'm so interested in spiritual, mystica, mystical spirituality that I like to um, write another book where I kind of move away from the 2012 topic and fill out that spiritual subject. All right. Well, I look forward to your, uh, your next uh, essay and uh, chatting with you again, Thomas. Thank you for this. Oh, thank you very much, Richard. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. All right. Uh, Dan Ellison uh, stays with us for a few more weeks, and then he's off on the road, and uh, we'll certainly miss him. But uh, we'll leave our formal goodbyes for another date. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Until next week, move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.